there should be no law against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. Hey, Crime Sad listeners, what is up? My name is Ashley, and with me always is my partner in crime, Ricky. And this is Crime Salad Podcast. We're so excited that you joined us because we have a terrifying case that we're about to tell you. It's a horror movie come to life. The year was 2006. A popular straight-A student was brutally murdered by two of her classmates in her aunt and uncle's home in a small town in Idaho. 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddard was house-sitting when she invited her boyfriend and two friends over for a movie night. What should have been a fun Friday night became a complete nightmare as the violent fantasy of her classmates came to life. So let's begin with Cassie. Cassie Jo Stoddard was born and raised in Pocatello, Idaho. Most of her family lived in the area and they were all pretty close. Andrew Stoddard, her younger brother, remembers that they used to spend much of their time at their grandparents' house. In 2006, she was 16 years old and a junior at the local high school. She loved art, loved to draw, and in fact, her mom had some of her artwork up around the house. Cassie's bedroom was also decorated with paintings from her favorite artist. And as a student, Cassie was liked by all. She was doing very well in her classes. And for Andrew, her brother, who was just a year younger, Cassie was his role model. She had plans to go off to college and was considering going into law. She was very responsible, friendly, and had big dreams for her future. Cassie was just a normal, happy teenage girl. On September 22nd, 2006, Cassie Jo Stoddard was getting ready to spend the first night house-sitting at her aunt and uncle's home on Whispering Cliffs Drive, just a bit further north than her hometown. It was a Friday night, and Cassie was to have the home all to herself all weekend. Like most teenagers with that opportunity, she invited her boyfriend of five months, Matt Beckham, and two of their friends over for a movie night. Matt arrived about six in the evening, but their two friends, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek, who were also in their junior year at Pocatello High School, didn't arrive until closer to 8.30. When they arrived, Cassie gave the boys a tour of the house and the group sat down to watch a movie. Few sources say that they put on the movie Kill Bill Volume 2, which is a gory and violent Quentin Tarantino movie. Part of the way through the film, Brian and Tori decided that they were going to head out and see a movie at a local movie theater in town instead. Tori would later say that the pair had thought there was going to be a party at the house, and they decided to leave when they realized that Cassie was just planning a quiet night in with her boyfriend. About 15 minutes after Brian and Tori left, strange things began to happen in the house. Cassie and Matt could hear strange noises, and one of the dogs kept looking towards the door that led down to the basement. The dog knew something was wrong. It started to bark and growl. Suddenly, all of the power went off in the house. Cassie, understandably so, became frightened. After all, they were two teenagers alone in the house in the midst of a violent movie. 
Her boyfriend, Matt, was still with her, but his curfew was approaching by the time the power went off, and it was around 9.30 at night. Rather than leave his girlfriend alone in the dark house by herself, Matt called his mother to ask him if he could spend the night with Cassie. His mom did say no to this, but she instead offered to let Cassie come to their house for the night and would drive Cassie back to the Whispering Cliffs residence in the morning. Despite her fear, Cassie decided to stay at the house, feeling that she made that commitment to stay. Plus, by the time Matt's mom arrived to pick him up about an hour later, some of the lights had come back on. As he left, Matt called Brian and Tori to let them know that he was leaving. And during this call, Matt thought it was odd that Tori was whispering. But Tori said that it was because he was still in the movie theater. After Matt left, Cassie went back to the couch in the living room, and for a second time, all of the power went out. The circuit breaker was in the basement, but Cassie didn't go down there to investigate. Quietly and in the darkness, two figures came up from the basement. They were wearing masks, gloves, and dark clothes. One slammed a closet door as they passed along the way to Cassie, attempting to scare her even more. When they reached the living room and found Cassie, they took out knives and brutally attacked her. Cassie Jo Stoddard was stabbed nearly 30 times, and nine of those wounds were deemed fatal. Her killers quickly fled the house through the basement door they had unlocked, leaving her lifeless body in a pool of blood. The next day, Matt Beckham planned to see Cassie again, but he wasn't able to get a hold of her. He tried calling her cell phone multiple times, but she never picked up. Figuring she was just busy, he didn't think much of it. On Sunday the 24th, Allison and Frank Contreras, Cassie's aunt and uncle who she was watching the house for, returned home with their 13-year-old daughter. It was their daughter, Cassie's cousin, who was the first to enter their home and find Cassie's body and the gruesome crime scene. For the Stoddard family, this was the beginning of a horrendous nightmare. Cassie's younger brother, who was 15 at the time of her death, remembers that he had been spending the night at a friend's house that weekend. When his parents didn't come pick him up, his friend's mom took him home. But when he arrived, his house was empty. When his Uncle Frank came to pick him up, he told him what had happened and took him to the home. Andrew remembers it all feeling so surreal. How could something so horrible have happened to his sister? The police started their investigation into Cassie's murder right away. It wasn't very difficult to determine the last people to see Cassie alive, who were Matt Beckham, Brian Draper, and Tori Adamchek. Matt had an alibi as he had been picked up by his mom earlier in the evening, so he was deemed innocent, and so the investigators went to speak with Brian and Tori. On the night of September 24th, the same day that Cassie's body was found, the police questioned both Brian and Tori about what had happened Friday night. Both boys admitted to being at the house that night with Cassie, but they told officers that they had left early to go into town to see a movie. Tori said that Brian had spent the night at his house afterward. When detectives asked them about what movie they saw and what it was about, neither boy was able to provide any details of the plot. Investigators were suspicious of the boy's story and continued to dig for more information. A few days later, on the 27th, police questioned Brian Draper again at his home. Brian told the same story that they had gone to the movies, but an officer said that he didn't believe that this is what actually happened that night. 
After that, Brian changed his story. He said that he and Tori had actually been going through cars in the neighborhood where Cassie was house-sitting, and that he only lied about going to the movie so that they wouldn't be getting in trouble for breaking into cars. Brian swore that this was the truth this time, but investigators remained skeptical. The police decided to search through the Draper's house in Brian's bedroom. There they found a knife sheath, but no knife. Brian said it belonged to a friend who had the knife, but he wouldn't provide any other details. Thinking that the sheath found in Brian's room could have belonged to one of the weapons used to kill Cassie's daughter. Police questioned Brian for a final time when they finished searching the house. At this point, it had been five days since Cassie's murder and three days since her body was found. This time, with his parents present, Brian gave the version of what happened on Friday night. While Cassie was giving Tori and Brian the tour of the Whispering Cliffs house, they had unlocked the basement door. They planned to come back later that night to scare Cassie and Matt. The boys put on dark clothes, masks, gloves, and carried knives with them. After pretending to leave for a movie, they quietly entered the house again through the basement door they had unlocked earlier. It was the two of them who had used the circuit breaker to cut off the power twice that night. They waited, hiding downstairs. And after they knew Matt had left with his mom, they crept upstairs and attacked Cassie. According to Brian during the interview, it was Tori who stabbed Cassie first. Brian said that he thought it was a joke meant to scare him. He said that he didn't realize until later that Cassie had actually been murdered. After having confessed, at least in part of his involvement in Cassie's death, Brian then led the police to an area in Black Rock Canyon where they had hidden their clothes and knives. Police found a small pile of items, including two dagger-style knives, a silver and black knife, a serrated hunting knife, masks, gloves, and black clothing. These items that were found were slightly burned, but they were for the most part in good condition. That night, Tori Adamchik was arrested for Cassie's murder. With both boys in custody and a confession from Brian, the police began to look closer at the evidence they had found in Black Rock Cannon to determine how each boy was involved with this merciless slaying and tried to piece together their motives. Though it was only partially damaged, investigators found a Sony videotape among the items recovered from Black Rock Cannon. After repairing it, they were able to access videos recorded by the boys ranging from days before the 22nd to minutes after Cassie was killed. What they heard Brian and Tori talk about is absolutely chilling. These recordings made on September 21st were later used in court, and they show Brian and Tori driving around talking about their plans to commit murder. It's, it's extremely messed up and creepy as they share their planning on sneaking into a woman's house to see if she is alone so that they can kill her. In the video, Brian remarks that they are trying to get a high death count. Brian says that they are going to call their friends Cassie and Matt. He says that even though they are his friends, they will have to make sacrifices. She's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. Was... They drive to Cassie's house where she's home alone with Matt. They casually talk about killing Matt. The recording ends, and when it starts again, it's 15 minutes later, still on the night of the 21st. 
Brian confirms that their first victim will be Cassie's daughter and her friends. They talk about how this will be just like the film Scream, only in real life. They compare themselves to serial killers like Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and Ed Gein. They want to go down in history as famous killers. The recordings from the next day, the day of Cassie's murder, take place at school. In the clips, they can be seen talking to Cassie, who has no idea what her so-called friends have planned. In another clip, they talk about their plan for the night and make a death list. And after that's recorded, when the filming picks up again, the boys had just left Cassie with Matt at her aunt and uncle's house. They said they are nervous, but are ready to commit the ultimate crime of murder. They end the recording by telling their imagined audience to stay tuned. The final video on the tape is the most difficult to hear. When the camera clicks on, Brian is saying, I just killed Cassie. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Oh, fuck. That felt like fucking real. I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. For prosecutors, these videotapes are more than enough to prove that Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek brutally killed in cold blood. The boys' defense argued that these tapes are a part of a movie the boys were filming, but this argument clearly did not hold up. Given the gruesome, premeditated nature of their crime, both Brian and Tori were charged as adults. As their trial went underway, each of the boys and their defense attempted to pin the murder on the other. Tori claimed that he didn't realize Brian was actually intending to murder Cassie, thinking it was part of a film that they were making. Brian claimed that it was actually Tori who had stabbed Cassie and that he only stabbed her due to the pressure and threats from Tori. On April 17, 2007, Brian was found guilty for Cassie's murder and two months later on June 8th, Tori was found guilty as well. They each received a mandatory life sentence without parole and a 30 to life sentence for conspiracy to murder Matt Beckham. They were taken to Idaho State Correctional Facility in the same transport van. The driver told reporters that the two, despite having tried to entirely blame the other for the murder, were amicable and talked just like old friends. They asked him to let them go, claiming to just be stupid kids. One boy reflected on how just three days had determined the course of their entire lives. It wasn't until they finally neared the prison that it seemed like Tori and Brian had begun to feel the gravity of what they had done. While the murderers of their daughter had been charged and in prison, the Stoddard family is still grieving the cruel loss of Cassie. Andrew, Cassie's brother, said that every member of their family has been impacted by their loss. The small town where they lived was also deeply shaken. No one ever suspected that such a gruesome crime could ever happen there. The students at the high school were left shocked not just by the loss of Cassie, but by the fact that two of their classmates were killers. For months, the Stoddard family had to go to court, reopening wounds and reliving their daughter's last day again and again. For the families of Tori and Brian, they had no idea what their sons were capable of. The sheriff at the time in Pocatello recalls having to tell the families that their 16-year-old son was being charged for murder. The Stoddard family feels sympathy for how this has impacted both of the boys' families, but ultimately, they are so glad to see justice served for their daughter. 
For Allison and Frank, Cassie's aunt and uncle, the nightmare continues as they are unable to sell the house where she was murdered. When the murder occurred, they had only just moved into the home on Whispering Cliffs a year or so earlier. When Cassie was found and their home was turned into a crime scene, the sheriff's office helped cover the cost of a hotel for the family and the cleanup process. But even with fresh paint and new carpet, the family cannot bear to go into the room where Cassie was murdered. Each member of the family continues to deal with the trauma tied to the house and that terrible night. Allison lost her job and fell into a deep depression. Frank had to get a second job to cover piling up bills. And their daughter, who found Cassie that morning of the 24th, was deeply affected and attempted suicide. Frank and Allison had put the house up on the market every year since then, but no one is buying and they feel trapped. We weren't able to find much information as to what's going on with the sale of this house, but on Realtor.com, I did see that the house did sell June 26th of 2015, so maybe the family was able to get a sell. In 2010, the Stoddard family, in attempts to find more justice for Cassie, filed a lawsuit against the school district for negligence. The suit claimed that the school had failed to take the necessary steps to protect Cassie from her two classmates that killed her. Given how much time teens spent in class, the case argued that the school should have been more aware of what was being planned by the students. The Stoddards lost their case on the grounds that what had happened to Cassie was truly unforeseeable by the school district. Some people wonder how did no one see that Tori and Brian wanted to commit such violence. In the almost 15 years since Cassie's murder, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchek have stayed in prison at the correctional facility in Idaho, though both have filed multiple appeals to have their sentences reduced or thrown out. In Brian's appeal, his defense claimed that the fixed life sentence was unconstitutionally cruel since he was only a young, immature 16-year-old. At this appeal, Brian's parents told reporters that they still feel terrible for the Stoddard family but they still feel the need to support their son anyway. Tori's attorney filed a similar appeal to Brian's, claiming that the original trial was unfair. In this appeal, Tori continues to claim that he was innocent, saying that it was only Brian who stabbed Cassie that night. For both Brian and Tori, these claims weren't enough to convince judges, and their appeals were each denied. Tori continues to file appeals to adjust his sentence, with his most recent one being in 2019. A Supreme Court recently overturned some cases where juveniles were given mandatory life sentences. In his appeal, Tori relies on this precedent to have his sentence reduced. So far, no ruling has been made. While there are arguments to be made on both sides for potentially amending a life sentence without parole for these two once 16-year-olds, it's also important to think about the victim and her family. Cassie's mom, Anna, has said that each hearing for the boys shatters what little closure they have been able to get in the past years. Anna, in part, feels that it is the family of Tori and Brian that push for the appeals. She says the parents need to get over their denial, realize that Adam Check did it, and he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail, and he should. To Anna, they still have their sons, but she has to visit her daughter in a cemetery. We hope that a decision will be made on Brian and Tori's cases soon so that the Stoddard family can start to make peace as best they can with what happened that awful night 14 years ago. 
For many of us, watching a horror film or even listening to a crime podcast is a scary but fun escape from our lives for a few hours. We don't often think about how those stories can be taken up by young minds and lead to terrifying consequences. There are so many aspects of Cassie's murder that are chilling. How these boys were her friends, how no one suspected that they were planning this murder, and how much more violence they really wanted to commit. But as for now, this completes this episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. I know we enjoyed looking into it. Please leave us supporting reviews and tell a friend about Crime Salad Podcast. We'll see you next time. Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.